Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Sarah Patterson, one of the hosts here on the channel. And today... Welcome back to New Books in Sociology. I'm Sarah Patterson, one of the hosts here on the channel. And today we are talking with Bumi Takor about her book, South Asians on the U.S. Screen, Just Like Everybody Else. Welcome to the show, Bumi. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Thank you for being here today. To get us started, can you tell us about yourself? Uh, Sure. So I am an assistant professor and the director of the sociology program uh, here in the Department of Sociology at Elmhurst College. Great. And how did this book come about for you? Oh, sure. So um, there's kind of a, I guess, a a long answer and a short answer for that. Um, The short answer is that it started as my dissertation research uh, when I was a candidate in the sociology department at Loyola University in Chicago. But the long answer, I think, really is rooted in my own personal experiences of consuming media as a youth, a young adult, and then eventually as an adult, and really being um, aware of some of the limited representations, uh, not only for um, South Asians, but also in general for people of color in our popular media. And um, sort of this internal desire of wanting to understand that issue, um, but I think really the satisfaction of being able to address that issue in a sociological way. So we'll get right started, uh, or started right up. Um, so in the intro, you sort of, or yeah, in the intro, you sort of bring up some t- terms that I think are sort of important for people who might not be familiar with this topic area. So like you bring up assimilation, acculturation, whitewashing. So I was hoping you could sort of start us off by setting the stage of, of these kind of terms and what you were looking for in your analyses. Sure. So um, I think what I really set out to do, and I would say this was very sort of um, uh, grounded theory method in that I, I really didn't know what I was going to find. Uh, you know, again, this was something that I observed, but my true test was to see if this was a larger social phenomenon. Was this something that other people were picking up on too? Some of the limited nature of these representations and characterizations. Um, so my research is primarily rooted in, um, well, media studies as well as kind of larger um, concepts of race and ethnic relations. Um, I think when we're interested in a group, in an ethnic group like South Asians or any other group for that matter, um, it's important to acknowledge the research on race and ethnicity, um, assimilation and immigration. And so I use um, I use that as a foundation to talk about the emergence of South Asians as an ethnic group in the American population, um, looking at, you know, kind of the demographic trends, like right? the history of immigration and how South Asians came to the United States, um, primarily under the, in more recent years, under the 1965 Act that allowed 
um, increases in migrants from from Asia, um, primarily those who are highly educated. Those are the ones who are able to obtain um, obtain access to the United States. Um, but then, sort of what happened after? You know, you um, you have uh, those individuals who came in 1960s and 70s under this new act who were then allowed to bring um, their family members under family reunification policies. And so how the experiences of those two groups um, were different based primarily on the cultural capital they were bringing with them. So um, using that as kind of a lens to understand the group in the United States, broadly speaking, um, but then also looking at how, um, how we can understand this group through, through the media. And so employing kind of critical media analysis, particularly um, concepts related to race and media. And so many scholars in this area, Stuart Hall and others, have talked about um, the degree to which these representations um, are limiting, not only in their kind of emphasis and reliance on stereotypes, but also, I think, in their tendency to sort of um, uh, erase ethnic characteristics, um, individual kind of idiosyncrasies from some of these representations, and really rely on a one-sided caricature of of these folks. Um, And certainly what I argue in the book is that these are very intentionally characterized, um, characterized, uh, certainly through um, an emphasis on on not only on stereotypes, but the degree to which um, assimilated or um, characters that seem to be more um, acculturated into the American identity um, rely on sort of uh, characteristics that make them more white. So you start off um, by talking about the Mindy Project first, and you mention in your book that this is sort of a noteworthy um, event happening on TV that, that she has this, this show. So I was hoping you could sort of explain why you felt like her show was noteworthy. Right. So um, up until that point, and even through my, my data collection for the initial project um, for the dissertation, I was really talking about um, a number of secondary characters in a variety of um, U.S. television and, and film, um, usually, you know, characters like uh, Tom Haverford from the show Parks and Recreation or Kelly Kapoor from The Office or even Apu from The Simpsons. These are sort of um, secondary characters to a larger story, um, not really the sort of primary starring characters. Um, so when the mini project came out in 2012, it was revolutionary for me um, in a lot of ways, right? So personally, in some of the ways I previously reflected, but also in acknowledging the fact that here you have a show um, not only written and produced and directed by um, a South Asian American woman, right? So now we've got an intersection of race and gender that's important, um, but the character itself um, the, the the character of Dr. Mindy Lahiri was the star of the show. It was her show. It was a story about her life, um, and that was that was really significant because I think in terms of representation, it really reflected an example of um, South Asians and their own experiences. It was less about how a character's life story. Um, reflected um, in comparison to or in response to the starring character of that show. But it was really a show about um, this South Asian woman. So in 
chapter one, you point out that media matters because it implies sort of a, a particular reality, right? Or it's sort of what you titled the uh, the chapter is seeing is believing. So I was hoping you could talk more about like how media matters. And particularly one of the things that I found really interesting in the book is this concept of forever foreigner. And this pops up a few times, but just in terms of how media matters and how it does really become the seeing is believing. Right. Um, so I think uh, in terms of kind of general sociology, we often talk about uh, the various agents of socialization um, that w- those entities which influence our understanding of society, our understanding of our role in society and the media um, sort of playing that primary role. Um, I think up to really up to about 2000, the majority of the characters we were see- South Asian characters we were seeing in our in American television, U.S. television and film, um, embodied this sort of forever foreigner character, forever foreigner characteristic, uh, relying heavily on um, stereo, um, an accent, stereotypical profession, um, often sort of serving as the butt of, of jokes. And I think Apu is a really good example of this. Um, although I, I also talk in the book about a number of other secondary characters. Um, really, who had you know arcs and TV shows for maybe one or two or three episodes, um, but again, these, these sort of stereotypical characters, um, kind of what you what an individual might think when they think of an a foreigner, um, really heavily accented, um, unable to assimilate into a normative American identity. So, um, you know, I think that kind of representation has significant impacts. And I think my respondents really picked up on this, not only in their awareness of kind of this representation as negative, but to some degree, um, some of my respondents really, uh, really were able to identify the realistic nature of this representation. And, you know, I think that kind of perspective is really interesting because it sort of presumes that this is a real representation, right? Um, this sort of presumed understanding that um, South Asians, this ethnic group in our society, are comprised of individuals who ultimately are unable to assimilate. And I think that holds a lot of power when you think about um, really just changing American demographics, right? And, and the degree to which um, people are brought into that, into that fold. So you mentioned some of the interview participants. So I was actually hoping you could sort of explain to us your methods. So you used audience studies. And so maybe for people who aren't familiar with that, uh, how that works. Right. So, um, you know, again, as I mentioned, I was really interested in these representations themselves. But I think what made this sociological is my focus on how audiences were perceiving it. Again, it was less about me or less about my read of the content. It was more about soliciting others who are consuming this content and general, being able to generalize from that. So um, I conducted two rounds of data collection. The first was an online survey that had distributed primarily through um, various uh, means uh, related, various um, outlets related to my institution, as well as, you know, through social media, through um, Facebook, um, through other connections using snowball sampling and those kinds of methodologies. And the purpose of that was really to tap into um, not only general kind of trends and perspectives, but also to just solicit from people what South Asian characters were coming to mind. That was really, um, a, you know, in retrospect, that ended up being the most, I think, important and uh, useful component of that first um, part of the of the data collection. 
Um, and so in the book, I, I give frequencies on the number of um, characters or the number of people that each character sort of, um, um, the number of uh, people who were, ref- who were reminded of each of these characters. And, you know, I was, I was surprised. I guess now I've lived with the data for so long, it's hard not to be surprised. But I remember at the, in that moment being surprised about which characters resonated the most. And so some of the top, you know, top few included, again, um, Kelly Kapoor from The Office, Tom Haverford from Parks and Recreation, Apu from The Simpsons, um, but also the characters from Slumdog Millionaire. Um, this The data collection was around 2011, and so this was not too long after Slumdog Millionaire um, came out in the U.S. market. So I think uh, that my data really picked up on that. Um, but in addition to just soliciting kind of demogra- or, um, frequencies of these characters um, and, their, and their resonance, um, I think I was able to tap into sort of the degrees to which people were able to perceive these characters as positive or negative. And that was useful for me in kind of um, creating these, these larger categories that I talk about in, this, in the book, um, ranging from kind of that forever foreigner to a more uh, model minority kind of flipping to the other side of the stereotype to a a character that is more assimilated, more Americanized, um, and then certainly what that means. Um, The second round of data collection was sort of a follow-up to that. I conducted um, 50 in-depth interviews with respondents who were media consumers. About half of them um, had completed the survey and had agreed to follow up. The other half were recruited primarily through snowball sampling. Um, And... I have a wide variety of respondents in terms of their demographics, um, but really what I was interested in is tapping into people who consume the media. I think inherently with qualitative research, we're always interested in, um, we're less concerned with kind of generalizability, but more interested in being able to tap into that social phenomenon we're interested in. And so, um, or that we're interested in studying. And so that, um, that was my strategy. Um, and in the interviews, I asked respondents a variety of kind of uh, background questions, but also a series of questions that solicited their responses, not only to uh, their perceptions of the media, um, their, as well as their perceptions of South Asians, but also, the, again, their perceptions of South Asians in the media and um, their reflections on what the future might hold with regard to um, diversity and media representation. In chapter two, you mentioned this a little bit before, but that you broke down um, the discussion of characters into positive and negative characteristics. So, for instance, I noticed that like a poo gets discussed a lot negatively, whereas like Kumar from Harold and Kumar go to White Castle is like more assimilated. So can you kind of explain to us what you found in terms of these positives and negatives? Right. So um, I relied primarily on on how the respondents were characterizing them. Right. I um, and and the ways in which a character like Apu um, was described, right? So if I asked respondents to, to characterize Apu, to talk a little bit about the resonance of his representation or even the way he's portrayed, um, a lot of the terms that came up were really negative, right? So immigrant, foreigner, butt of jokes, you know, these were phrases that were invoked by my respondents. And so um, I was able to kind of qualify those as being negative, um, negative characterizations or negative perceptions of these characters. Um, characters like uh, uh, Kumar from Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle um, really broke the mold in a lot of ways. And so I think historically, when we look at this trajectory, um, as I mentioned, kind of around 2000 is where we see the shift. 
Um, the movie Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle came out in 2004 and was really seen as revolutionary for um, a portrayal of two Asian American um, individuals, right, an Indian American and a Korean American in this very unstereotypical um, role, right? To some degree, there were some stereotypes that were reproduced, right? So um, Kumar is a, a, a prospective medical student and Harold is in finance or business, right? So um, some reliance on kind of the model minority characteristics um, that we know, but in terms of their <laughs> extracurricular activities, really breaking the mold from how we had traditionally seen South Asians represented. Um, and, and I think my respondents really picked up on that, right? So they, in many ways, they, in, they, um, they were able to make that direct connection between these negative characteristics, like uh, characterizations like Apu, ones that were seemingly more positive and breaking the mold. So um, really this, uh, this kind of shift from, from negative to positive, um, just in terms of, of how the respondents were describing it, was really noteworthy. So then you move into a discussion sort of of ethnicity. So this idea of like the being a foreigner versus being whitewashed or being the model, model minority. Um, and here you point out uh, Tom from Parks and Rec, which my sister will be very happy to know that you reference Parks and Rec. Um, but you know, you actually point out that he kind of is actually living in an absence of culture, right? Whereas Apu's culture is emphasized. Right. Yeah. So I think, um, you know, with Tom, he's a very interesting character. So he really breaks, he breaks away from this kind of, um, this, this dual ended, um, stereotypical representation, right? So he's neither model, uh, he's neither forever foreigner nor model minority, right? He just kind of is something else, right? He's like a low level government official who, you know, references old Kelly and, you know, is an aspiring businessman, right? So really breaking the mold in so many ways. Um, and I, that was something that was really interesting to me, right? Because again, that was something that I sort of picked up on in my own consumption, but wanted to solicit my respondents about. Um, and the way in which my respondents talked about characters like Tom from Parks and Recreation was that he was positive because he didn't embody these stereotypes, right? Neither, again, neither foreigner nor model minority. Um, a phrase that many of my respondents used was the term, just like everyone else, um, which is the subtitle of the book, um, which again, I just kept hearing over and over again, um, that I just, I had to acknowledge it. And that finding was interesting to me um, as I was conducting this research. You know, what does this mean just like everyone else? Who is this everyone else that people are referring to, right? Um, is this sort of absence of represent or absence of ethnic representation or ethnic characteristics? But but what is this? Who is this? Everyone else that they're referring to? And um, through my analysis, um, I argue that this everyone else is a reference to sort of a normative white American identity, right? Well, normative American identity that is um, inherently white that that inherently relies on sort of um, dynamics of whiteness. Um, this default kind of white identity that we as Americans um, assume uh, is very much embodied by the characters. And I would say the same for characters like um, Kelly Kapoor from The Office. Um, their ethnicity may be referenced on the side, but ultimately their characters do not represent their ethnic background. Um, and so for many, this was seen as positive, right? Because again, we're breaking the mold, we're bake, breaking stereotypes. Um, there's a lack of reliance on these overt stereotypes. 
But I argue that, that these representations, too, are, are limiting in a couple of ways. Um, so first, again, they kind of reproduce this normative assumption default of white American identity. But I would argue that they also don't really reflect the experiences of South Asian Americans in the United States, many of whom are balancing their own ethnic identities in the same way that most second generation um, immigrants uh, do, right, where they've sort of got one foot in both cultures. Um, it may be true that they are breaking the mold in terms of their professional backgrounds or their um, extracurricular activities, but at the same time, um, there is still this awareness of their ethnic identity and certainly an awareness of where they might fit into a larger American racial hierarchy um, that's ultimately missing from these representations. And so I, I, too, am very critical of even these seemingly positive kind of um, uh, representations. Yeah, because even one of your respondents mentioned, you know, I think it was regarding Harold and Kumar, that they're presented sort of as normal people <laughs> versus tokens. And I thought that that was an interesting way to to say it. So then um, you move into a discussion of gender. And here again, you bring up um, Mindy Kaling, um, but specifically in her transition in the office um in the show and so how she you know started off as just sort of like a minor character and then she becomes more important throughout the series so i was hoping you could sort of tell us what you um, found about gender uh could you repeat that last part i'm sorry yeah no worries um so then you move into a discussion of gender and here you're using mindy kaling's character from the office and sort of how she her character transitions over time in that series so i was hoping you could sort of explain some of the findings you had about gender right so um you know i think i think the the kaling phenomenon with regard to gender is really interesting you know backtrack a little bit um in terms of my my findings on gender so uh, one of the questions I asked in my respondents, of my interview respondents, was to describe uh, those characters that they found attractive. And, um, you know, again, this was a relatively open-ended question. It was really meant more for people to, um, people to give me their opinions. Um, not only did I sort of ask that question in a generic sense, but then I specifically asked um, about characters that the respondents found, or South Asian characters that the respondents found attractive. And I was really uh, surprised, although not surprised by the response, by the results, um, the majority of characters that were described and discussed uh, fit this sort of um, white beauty ideal that we have in our society. And so the South Asian characters that were referenced included um, Eshwarya Rai, the Bollywood actress, um, uh, the character, the female characters from the women characters from Outsource, the TV show, um, Shilpa Shetty was another South Asian actress. Um, so a number of actresses who embody, as well as um, Latika from Slumdog Millionaire. So really, uh, South Asian women who have a very light phenotype are very fair, very thin, um, have have very Western facial features. Uh, so this was being reproduced in terms of sort of the perceived attractiveness. Um, Kaling never really came up, right? Um, and I think the fact that she didn't come up was really noteworthy, considering she had come up in all these other contexts, right, of, of her representation um, in the office, her uh, significance. You know, some of my respondents acknowledged that she had had um, uh, minor roles in a variety of films around the 20, early 2010s. 
Um, but she wasn't coming up when when respondents were asked to reflect on attractiveness. Um, and I think that's really noteworthy. And so I, in the book, I reference um, Laura Mulvey's concept of the male gaze, which refers to the ways in which um, media producers reproduce um, this sort of ideal phenotype, this ideal physical um, personification of attractiveness, right? Really privileging um, this this beauty ideal that we individuals who embody this this beauty ideal that exists in our in our Western society. And um, I acknowledge that Kaling, in many ways, was able to subvert that through her history in in Hollywood. Um, she was she started as a writer on the sh- on the Office. Um, she that was her sole role. She had had experience um, performing as a graduate of Dartmouth. Experience performing um, on stage. It was recruited. Was seen as a as a as a comedian and was recruited by. Um, the creators of The Office to contribute to the U.S. version of the show, um, and really that that was her that was her role. Um, a, a one of the early episodes of The Office called for a um, a story arc in which uh, Michael Scott was <laughs> slapped by a by a non-white um, office worker for for him being racist, and um, she was able to essentially create her own character, right? And and from there we see her character transition from just another face in the in the corner of the office to a to a major player on that show over the years um and so there was no casting call that existed for that show um there was no uh screen um screen auditions that existed in which producers would have to um measure her uh, her marketability or her perceived attractiveness. You know, she was able to subvert that in many ways, um, which is ultimately, I think, why she um, was even on the office in the first place. I think if if the if um, if that character was subjected to the same kinds of criteria that other um, characters in other roles had been, we might have seen a different person um, who played that character. And so, um, again, you know, Kaling is is positive um, in in terms of my own analysis. I think Kaling is a really positive representation um, in so many ways, primarily for her ability to kind of break this mold. So. You kind of mentioned this uh, when you were talking about Kaling, but um, in chapter four, you also reference what you call the tipping point of ethnicity. So I was hoping you could talk more about that. So in terms of the tipping point, um, I think I think what I'm really trying to get at is sort of the, 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 the point at which a character might fall on this spectrum from um, forever foreigner, um, model minority and assimilated American, right? And um, one of the concepts I use is this term ethnic characterizations to really get at the at the production of these characters. Um, again, uh, referencing kind of the, the male gaze and the, and the process that goes into casting a character as it's written, um, some of the ways in which um, characters are able to move past uh, some of this reliance on, on stereotypes, right? So, so um, how a character might uh, might rely on these stereotypes, but then the ability to sort of move past them. Um, so then in Chapter 5, you focus specifically on the show Outsourced. Um, and you mentioned that, you know, your respondents kind of said that the show relied too much on stereotypes. 
Um, but then you also had respondents, you had one respondent who said that, you know, these, these stereotypes that she saw on Outsourced really reflected, you know, the real life experiences she had of people making fun of her and her family. So I was hoping you could talk more about this example of Outsourced. Right. So Outsourced to me was interesting in so many ways. And again, this came up really, um, Right at the the show first premiered right at the start of my data collection, and so I have some interesting data um, throughout my period of data collection that that reflects kind of the the buzz before the show, um, early reflections of the show, and then ultimately kind of reflections after the show had been canceled at the end of its first season. Um, you know, outsourced the show was based on an independent film of the same name. Um, that chronicled an experience of a call center manager in the United States whose job was outsourced to India and kind of his his experiences, you know, um, integrating with that work community, but also um, coming to terms with kind of being a foreigner, right? Um, and I think the film does a really good job of uh, showing this, right, in a way that um, wasn't too essentializing and didn't rely too much on kind of white savior tropes, um, you know, I think the film film was, did a good job. Um, they relied on South Asian um, actors in, in some of the roles, right? So um, they filmed on on they filmed in India. So again, you know, sort of this awareness of of this culture clash and this pretty accurate reflection of the experiences of that culture clash. The show, on the other hand, um, you know, didn't really uh, do as good a job, right? Um, and I think they were confined. You know, admittedly, they were sort of confined in their ability to do that, right? They couldn't. It was a TV show in its first season. They couldn't exactly um, justify the budget of filming in India, <laughs> so it was on a soundstage, right, um, in Los Angeles. And you know, there's some limitations in in their ability to actually portray India or Indian society as a result. Um, but there were some things that were in their control that, that were a little disappointing, right? So um, the majority of the characters, of the South Asian characters, um, the majority of well, all of the women, uh, the primary women in the in the show were kind of, were had embodied this sort of um, beauty ideal that was um, phenotypically white and fair and um, thin and, and really didn't um, represent the kind of... Uh, typical diversity that we see in the South Asian community. Um, you know, the, the characters um, very much relied on kind of one-sided characterizations. Uh, much of the early, much of the first few episodes of the show relied on sort of, you know, the, the, the butt of the joke was the culture clash, right? Oh, you know, you've got this um, American guy in India looking for hamburgers and, you know, making fun of a, a fun of a, a a co-worker's turban and calling it a funny hat, right? So, you know, kind of these, like, these comedic points that really weren't very culturally sensitive, right? Um, but again, because of the nature of the of the show as a comedy, that's kind of what they relied on. Um, you know, it, it's my opinion that I think that as the show went on, um, it got a little bit more progressive in its um, representation, right? So they had to sort of, sort of establish their universe and uh, the, sh- the storyline could now focus more on the relationships between the characters. Um, but ultimately, I think it was too little too late, which is really what I argue. Um, it, it, uh, had set, it had set the stage in such a um, one-sided way 
um, in a way that really used uh, relied on comedy, right, to set this sort of stage of culture clash and the stage of you know uh, difference, difference, ex- different experiences and different society, uh, being in a different society. Um, that just that that really didn't sit well with a lot of folks. And um, you know, ultimately, I'm not sure what led to its demise. Uh, you know the the show had been signed for a second season and kind of at the 11th hour, um, the network NBC had just pulled the plug on it. So, um, you know, usually those decisions are made for purposes of advertising. And so my assumption will be, would be that, um, I think it was just too, um, too politically charged or too perceived as too insensitive by most. And I think advertisers probably had a hard time in justifying um, buying time, buying time during the programming. And so that's probably why NBC pulled it. Um, you know, ultimately, advertisers are the ones who make, who, in, who influence a lot of those decisions with regard to television programming in the United States. And, you know, South Asians, again, thinking about kind of the demographics and the realities of South Asians in the United States, um, they make up a large market share. And so I think if they, the perception was that South Asians were not consuming this show, um, were offended by this show, then it just wasn't in their best interest to keep pursuing it. So then you conclude the book um, by giving us some takeaways. And I thought one of the nice things about your conclusion chapter was you not only talk about sort of implications of the specific research, but for race relations in general. So I was hoping you could sort of give us some takeaways from the book. Right. So, um, right. So again, as you mentioned, um, there's sort of the, the larger takeaway of the, you know, problematic limiting nature of, of media representations and some of the effects that these have on our understandings of, of race and the racial hierarchy in the U.S. Um, but I think ultimately this is a larger story in a couple of ways, right? So um, we can think about issues of uh, representation and, and diversity in the media and acknowledge that this is not just an issue for South Asians, but of all racial ethnic groups. Um, you know, admittedly, things have changed a little bit. We see much more diversity and that's increasing. But I think really the key is going to be the, to, to, to measure the extent to which these examples, right, these, you know, numbers of, of non-white representations really um, reflect something um, uh, constructive, critical, right, something that really challenges the status quo. Um, that will be the true test. Um, and again, you could say that for representations of all uh, non-majority groups in our media, um, really being able to understand, um, you know, how our media is going to come to terms with the fact that we are a changing demographic in so many ways. And we need media not only to reflect the experiences of those of us in the demographic who identify as such, but also really provide a true representation for everyone else, right? For the consumers to really demonstrate that this is the this is the new reality that this increasingly kind of diverse, multicultural, multi-experienced um, society is where we are. Um, but I also think again that there are larger implications for kind of race relations and and social relations. So um, the extent to which these representations reflect how people see these populations in society. Um, there's often discussion of kind of a, the dynamic of habitus, um, Pierre Bourdieu's habitus um, applied in a racial uh, context. So the degree to which um, there are communities in the United States in which um, 
uh, non-white people just don't exist, right? These are predominantly close to 100% white communities. Um, and the only kind of awareness or experience or understanding they have of non-whites is through the media. And so, again, if these groups are faced with um, nothing but overt stereotypes in the media, then that will be their, their understanding. And that will, that will inform their perceptions. And so um, I think uh, I think when it comes to uh, media representations, there are larger implications for our society's ability to move forward and um, and come to terms again with this kind of uh, increasing diversity. So today we've been talking with Bumi Takor about her book South Asians on the U.S. Screen, just like everyone else. So Bumi, what are you working on now? <laughs> so. Um, I'm actually thinking about doing sort of a part two to this research um, that's actually on the agenda um, uh, for the fall to begin the process of of looking at um, a contemporary representations and continuing the story. One of the things I faced in doing this research is that by the time it got to the publication part, um, a lot of the characters weren't even on TV anymore. And so that's really just reflects how media is this changing animal. And um, there's always something new happening. Um, but I think in the way in which I focused on audience perceptions in this in this um, book, I'd very much like to move the conversation to um, sort of a reflection not only on the content itself, but also some reflection on the production side. And a lot of um, my sociology colleagues have, have done this work as well. Um, and I think also with audience studies, um, focus groups tend to be a really useful way in, in, in gathering audience perspectives. And I would love to implement that methodology and think about um, the best format for that. So honestly, a part two, I, I think, is the next thing on the horizon for me. Nice. Sounds like a cool follow-up to this book. Um, so thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. 